Hello. Welcome to The Plot Thickens with me, Ellie Griffiths. You might know me as the author of the Dr Ruth Galloway books and the Brighton Mysteries. This is a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of crime writing. From what it's really like to be a published author, to the intricacies of our research, and just how we think up those killer twists. Each episode, I'm welcoming an expert guest to lift the curtain on everything you want to know about the world of crime fiction. For those of you who've read my Ruth Galloway books, there'll be lots of behind-the-scenes detail on the characters, settings and history. But if you haven't come to them yet, we'll make sure to flag any spoilers, and there'll still be plenty to enjoy. This week, we have Anne Cleves to talk about settings. From how we capture an atmospheric setting, what it brings to our books, and the joy of touring a specific area of the country year after year. Anne is the award-winning crime writer, whose books are behind ITV's Vera and BBC Shetland, set in Northumberland, Shetland and, most recently, Dorset. Oh, hi, Anne. Hello, Ellie. It's so lovely to be here. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. It's brilliant. So you're not actually in the studio with me. And as we're talking about setting, I wondered if you could set the scene about where you are. Well, I'm in my little house in Whitley Bay, which is Vera country. It's North Tyneside, right on the coast. I can't see the sea from my room, but I've got a lovely painting that a friend did of a huge seascape in the living room where I'm sitting. So I'm kind of by the sea. Oh, that's lovely. It's a bit like when I'm in my writing shed, which, I, you know, I live in Brighton. I used to be able to see the sea from my writing shed, but my neighbours very selfishly put an extra story on their house, so I can't see it now. But I have a lovely seascape of Norfolk <laughs> that I look at. So lovely to have you here. Obviously, the author of the Fantastic Vera series, Fantastic Shetland series, and now um, the Matthew Venn series. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about settings as we're here. Um, how do you choose a setting? How did you know that Vera was going to be in Northumberland, for example? Uh, I think because I live here. Yes. And because... When I first came here, when we first moved here in the 80s, I write quite traditional crime fiction. And so moving into the village, which was a former pit village in southeast Northumberland, quite rural, but still had that um, that industrial past and that very, very close mining community. So within half an hour of moving in, my neighbour was in with tea and oh. biscuits and gossip. <laughs> and by the time she went, I knew uh, the, the backstories of everybody living in the street. I knew who I could go to to get uh, manuscripts typed because that was pre-computing days. And I just knew that this was going to be a great place to write traditional crime fiction because I think if you're writing a village murder mystery in the South now, there are very few of those villages where the people who live there, their families go back generations and they have those close ties because it's commuters. And it's certainly in, in the West Country, in North Devon, where I live, there are so many rental properties and holiday homes yeah. there that it doesn't feel that, that you could do it. But I knew that I could in Northumberland. It's a bit the same with Norfolk, actually, because, you know, the Ruth books are set in Norfolk, but I live in Brighton and I've got some family links to Norfolk. But people do send, tend to sort of stay in Norfolk, you know, to live there and stay there. And so you do get all that local knowledge that I don't think, I think you're right, I don't think you'd get that in a place like Brighton, which people often sort of pass through, you know. Yeah, I think so. And I think I love that. I love that. When we first moved here, you could tell from people's accents which 
former pit village they lived in because there was just that people didn't really move at all. They just stayed where they were. It's different now, of course, because people have to move away for work. But then they didn't. There were still working pits in Northumberland when we first moved there. You still hear the old old Norfolk accent, actually. But again, as you say, it's much rarer now. And it's so beautiful. It's such a lovely accent. Yeah, I do love that Norfolk accent. Yeah. <laughs> it's, there's a, you can buy, um, I think it's called All Beautiful and New. And it's a, a version of the Bible in that Norfolk accent. It's oh, so amazing. cool. Yeah. But I suppose in a book, if you had a character like, you know, just thinking of your story about when you moved in, if you had a character come around as soon as you move in and give you everyone's backstory, that would be too good convenient for a plot wouldn't it absolutely but just just knowing that it's that sort of place was really useful and that's why I started writing about it I think oh it's wonderful and what about a place that you don't live so what happened with Shetland well I know Shetland very well too because I dropped out of university and a chance meeting in a pub in Putney I love this story (laughs) got me a job cooking in Fair Isle Bird Observatory. And I didn't know where Fair Isle was. I thought <laughs> vaguely, well, I had no Scottish geography at all. I thought vaguely it was one of the Western Isles, but it isn't. It's the most southerly island in Shetland. And it's a long way from anywhere. It's if, for those people who, like you, are coming to Shetland Noir next spring. I cannot they'll, wait. They'll find out that it's um, either 12 or 14 hours by overnight by ferry from Aberdeen and depends whether you stop off in Orkney on the way and then another three hours on the most horrible boat in the universe to get into Fair Isle. Oh I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Well you don't have to do we'll be on Shetland mainland so you'll be able to just fly in in an hour it'll be fine Um, and then yeah then I loved it fell in love with the island got to know Shetland that was a long time ago nearly 50 years ago and I'm still visiting and so I know it really well I spent two years in fair on two different seasons so you had a chance meeting in a pub as a sort of yeah. teenager and someone says come and be a cook I mean were you a cook could you cook no couldn't cook knew nothing about birds but I was assistant cook so that meant that I was mostly peeling spuds and cleaning bathrooms the first year and I must have done all right because the next year they had me back as cook. I still know some of the people who were there that first time. Still friends with them, which is terrific. Oh, it's so lovely. And you met your husband there? I did, yeah. He came as a visiting bird watcher, came and stayed in the observatory and we got on. Oh. He had I it was it was a fairly dry island in those days. It's not so much now. But I did notice that he had a bottle of very good malt whiskey on top <laughs> of his rucksack while I was showing him to his room. Made him even more the perfect man, I should imagine. <laughs> yeah. So when you came to sort of set uh, a murder series there, I mean, did you think about the fact, I mean, there aren't many murders there, are there? There are some. Um, there have been some in the last in the last 50 years, I suppose. But no, and it was always going to be a standalone novel, The Raven Black. It was going to be a book about what it is to be an outsider. And it was... So Jimmy Perez looks different because there was an armada ship wrecked off Fair Isle and there were 60 survivors. So it's not outside the bounds of possibility that one of them married an island woman. Um, And yeah, so I never thought it would be a series. It was just going to be a one off. And my editor made it clear that she didn't see it going beyond that because it would stretch credibility (laughs) to um, write more than one murder in the islands, all the islands have a population of about 23,000 people. So there aren't that many people there. Um, but 
But then it did so well and it sold better than anything else I'd ever written that she came back to me and said that she thought it might run to a short <laughs> series. I love Raver Black. Funny enough, I've just been talking to, on another episode of the podcast, to my editor, Jane, and I've been really lucky, actually, because I've had the same editor for all the Ruth books. And we talked about, you know, whether we knew that the Ruth would be, the Ruth books would be a series. And I think at first we just thought it would be a couple of books, really. And when you write a, a long running series in a place, uh, that does bring other things into consideration, doesn't it? The whole sort of Midsummer Murders trap, you know, of having yeah. too many murders in one beautiful place. It does become a bit ridiculous. And I think, you know, that's why I stopped after eight, really. You couldn't kill any more people off. And the BBC had killed far more than I had. Yes. So I just let them carry on and they can kill off who they like. That's a great quote. The BBC had killed more people than I have. But we can talk about endings in a minute because I'd love to know about that. But the latest, Vera, um, The Rising Tide, that's set on Lindisfarne. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, Lindisfarne, known up here as Holy Island. Yes. And, um, yeah, I I suppose it was my lockdown book. It was the book that I wrote when we were really, really scared at first when the pandemic hit. And we all, I think suddenly all of us were aware that we might die. We mm. were going to die at some point, which we all know, don't we? But yes, it, it hit us that for every four people that went into hospital, only three came out, which was... I think we forget now that we, we've got vaccinations and we've got um, antivirals and things, and it was incredibly scary. And so I suppose it was me pulling together a group of older people who have a school reunion every five years on Holy Island and thinking about their own mortality and thinking that what their legacy might be and what they want to do, what adventures they want to have in the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really great setup, isn't it? Um, what, do you think there's something about islands? I mean, I know Britain is an island, but, you know, an island like Lindisfarne. Yeah, well, it's, again, it's going back to that traditional crime fiction, isn't it? Yes. The enclosed, the enclosed community and only the people who are there might have done it. But for me, also, I've lived on islands. You know, I started writing when we lived on the, the island of Hilbury, which is off the Wirral Peninsula. And Tim and I were the only people living there. It was oh, my small, goodness. It was a small local authority nature reserve. And it was tidal, like like Holy Island. But, we, yeah, we had no mains electricity, no mains water, collected water from the roof, which was fine unless there was a northwesterly gale and then you'd have salty tea for the next week until it cleared the system. Uh, but but I suppose I like islands. I love I love having a patch. I like having mm. a very defined patch. And it's great here because I've got the Tyne as the southern border and the Pennines to the west and the North Sea to the east and the Hadrian's Wall to the north. So I've got my patch here. It's about being able to see the edges a bit, isn't it, I think? I think it is. Something. Yeah, I do get a bit edgy if I go too far inland. It's a bit scary, a bit claustrophobic. So do I. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, I find it very... Very edgy and scary if I'm inland. I mean, the thing about Norfolk, I think, is it's on it's on the very far east bit, isn't it? And you can't go any further. And I think that's there's right. something about those sort of places. Yeah, you've got sea to the east and to the north, really, because you've got the estuary coming in. So I think the wash coming in. So I think, yeah, there is something lovely about small places and islands are small places. I, this is totally off topic, but did you ever read the Lorna Hill pony books? 
when you all were. the time. Oh, did Loved you? Yes, because that was my first introduction to Lindisfarne because they go on to Lindisfarne and one of them. Yeah, and they they talk a lot about the the Cheviot and Northumberland yes, Hills. Yes, started right reading the ballet books, but then they I wasn't into ballet, but I was into Wild Places, and we both love. Malcolm Savile too. We do, we? yes, exactly. Malcolm Savile is great on place, isn't he? He absolutely is. Uh, so yeah, so we've got those those shared childhood writers. I mean, and I've never met anybody else who who'd read Nola Hill. Well, I thought when I was thinking about Linda Sand, thought I must ask Anne that. But I was exactly like you. Started with the ballet books, but really, my sisters, two older sisters, did ballet. But I was into horse riding and things like that. So I immediately sort of went on to those pony books but and they're great aren't they they're great on they're setting really, and yeah. must reread some of them but yeah an adventure and kids just being allowed to go out and roam by themselves yes yes and there, isn't there one where they have to have a holiday spending only half a crown or something like that I mean all, all oh, I don't things. remember that one. <laughs> it might be called the half crown holiday but then again I might just be making it up so who knows um when we Last saw each other, it was at St Hilda's um, in, in Oxford, which is just such an amazing crime weekend then. This this year's was particularly fantastic, wasn't it? It was a heat wave, it was beautiful. Um, but you did such an interesting talk on psychogeography. I think that's what it's called. I wondered if you could tell us what that is. Well, I think I called it human geography. Human geography. That's right. I think I'm very interested that people grow out of the places where they find themselves. And so I am a great believer that there is such a thing as society and community and that we are who we are because of the community that we're a part of. And, it, you know, the kids that we in the street where we played and the view we saw from our windows and our families and the school that we went to, that all feeds into who we are. And that's all about place. That's all about setting. And I think when new writers start to think about a story and to start to think about characters they need to have the place very firmly in their mind because well as as with you and the and both your series with the the um certainly the norfolk ones place is so important you the stories wouldn't be the same if they were set somewhere else and the characters wouldn't be the same if they were living somewhere else and i think new writers sometimes forget just how it affects the names of the people and it affects dialogue and it affects absolutely everything that we're writing about. I think that's so true, isn't it? It really does. And as we were saying early on, you know, we, we feel odd if we're away from the sea and it's it's not just place, is it? It's it's in everything that we write about. Do you do you do a little map when you when you write a book? Do you know sort of or do you use it in your head? I try and keep everything in my head because I think if it's written down then I kind of give up thinking about it. And I think it needs to be there fermenting away in the background, whatever I'm doing. I do quite like it when I open a book and I see a map, though. Do you like that? I mean, I love maps. So the, the rising tide I wrote when we weren't allowed to travel started off. Of writing, course. We weren't so I did have a big, large scale ordnance survey map of the island on my kitchen table. And just although most of the places in there are fictitious, they're made up, I wanted to know where on the island they were, even if the places weren't actually there. There's no pilgrim's house in the middle of the island, but I knew in my head where it was. So do you make up places and sort of add them to real places? Yes, because it's the only time that I am the god in my universe. <laughs> you know? I am totally in control when I'm writing a book and I sort of think I can do what I like, really. 
I love that, though. I do that as well, because I've got Norfolk, which, of course, is full of amazing uh, places. But occasionally I've made up a place like I made up a Sea's End in the house at Sea's End. But there are so many places that kind of could be Sea's End, if you know what I mean. It's sort of a yeah. very, very Norfolkish concept and the, the sort of the erosion and, the, and the, the place sort of slowly falling into the sea and all that. But does anyone ever, because people do sometimes write to me about, so Ruth works at a fictitious university called the University of North Norfolk. And sometimes people write to me and tell me I put it in the wrong place. But of course, it's made up. Does anyone yeah. ever do that with you? To... Yeah, occasionally. But I think, yeah, I think we're allowed to do that. I, really I think do. we are. As long as, as you were sort of saying earlier, it kind of makes sense in terms of the sort of social and, uh, you know, economic geography of the place, you know, that you, you'd have something like that there. I think that's fine. Yeah. Have you ever written about a place that you don't know well? Do you know, I don't think I have. Really, I think because I've got the um, the Norfolk series and Brighton series. Obviously, I live in Brighton, and my earlier books, you know, written under my own name, were set in Italy, in parts of Italy that I knew really well because my family were Italian. So I don't think I have. And my my most recent book, Bleeding Art Yard, is set in London, which is where I grew up. So what about you? Have you ever set a book somewhere you don't know? Not novels, but I think. Um short stories I think short stories lend themselves to that first impression you know when you go somewhere and that shock of a new place and you see it as you'll never ever see it again because you hit by the the difference by the smells by the taste by the way people are walking by all those sort of things and that works absolutely brilliantly I think for a short story that's really true isn't it that first sometimes you see things in such a different way when you see them for the first time it's right. it's like if you come into a series in the middle. Um, when I was young, I was obsessed with a series called the Jalna Books, uh, which is a long-running family saga set in Canada. But I started in the middle. And I always had a particular feeling about the book that I started at because it was in the middle, you know, and it was my yeah. first view of them all. So it is different. What about the Matthew Venn series? Because that's a really particular, Two Rivers, that's a really particular setting, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's where I grew up. I oh. we, we moved to North Devon when I was 11, so I went through secondary school there in Barnstable and still have great friends there. And my dad was a village head teacher, so he taught in the village of Umberley up the Tor Valley and then in Woolacombe, right on the coast. So, yeah, and I had just the best time. My sixth form, I think, was perhaps that's why I dropped out of university because <laughs> I had the best time in sixth form and we got on so well and it was all talking ideas and plans and places and music and and then university seemed quite anonymous in contrast and I thought I was going to be like school but even better I, I think sixth form can be great can't it I didn't I don't think I really enjoyed school till sixth form and then I really did enjoy it yeah and I still have I think again that's where the rising tide comes from in a way I still have friends that I'm in touch with who I was at school with and just feel very very close to yes yeah me too I'm still in touch with with friends from that time what about I was thinking because you said earlier about names that have been forming I mean Matthew Venn I've been busy thinking is it a Venn diagram is it but but what is that just a local name it is a well there's a, a Venn Quarry just outside uh, Barnstable and someone said to me oh brilliant Venn there's the the main character in Thomas Hardy's the, uh, what's it called Return of the Native The no. Return of the Native yes. that's right and and he's come back I 
couldn't remember reading the return of the maker. <laughs> I love brilliant. it when people see, when people see that in your book. Something. Yeah, sort of. and then the Venn diagram thing as well, which I hadn't thought about. But no, I but I, and again, I think Matthew Venn grew out of the people that I knew there, and I can remember going back. I, I, I ran away there after Tim died, my husband died, because I wanted to be somewhere different and yeah. without the sympathy, without the mm. pity of people who knew him. And so I ran away back to stay with my old school friend in Barnstable and just chatting to her because she'd grown up in quite an enclosed, um, certain religious evangelical community. Oh, right. And, and it just occurred to me just talking to her that if you'd grown up in a community like that, and you lost your faith, you would feel really unanchored and lost. And you might turn to joining the police service for its sense of community and family and honour and a kind of redemption in a way. So that's how Matthew Venn became who he was. And that's what you were saying earlier, isn't it, about human geography, everything being about the place and the person who you are, because that makes perfect sense for him, doesn't it? It does, I think. And, and... Yeah, I was quite lucky because we have the, the Plymouth Brethren and the, I think that the West Country did develop those quite enclosed groups of, of people who were very certain about their faith. Yes, certainty um, is and, very and scary, that, isn't it? it? It can be, yes. And it's, it's the sort of rabid certainty that we seem to be seeing a lot of in politics yes. at the minute that's really horrible. But then I thought I would make Matthew gay, partly because because it fitted in nicely with the plot and that he that would make it very difficult for a reconciliation with his family. But more importantly, I think the, the people that looked after me after Tim died, who scooped me up and oh. let me cry on their shoulder and fed me tea and sympathy, were a gay couple, a lovely gay couple, Martin and Paul. And they were rattling around in my head, I think, when I started writing. And I wanted to celebrate their wonderful marriage and their kindness. And so that's how he became gay. And I love Matthew's relationship with Jonathan. It's it's really, I mean, I would say too much if people haven't read this amazing series, but it is, it, it's lovely to have a, a happy marriage, you know, in, yeah. in, a, in a book. It's really unusual, isn't it? It is. It's, it's the first happy marriage that I've ever written <laughs> without, without killing off one of the partners, you know, because I think it can be quite tedious, can't it? A happy marriage in <laughs> It really can. I, I got to give the Dorothy L. Sayers lecture this year, which was really, you know, big honour and everything. And I decided to give it on uh, romance in crime fiction because, to be honest, in Busman's Honeymoon, when, when um, Harriet and Peter are married, they do become a bit tedious, Oh, I, I know. I, I hate to say it. And they have this awful way of talking. It's a really arch way of talking to each other, but they, he calls her Domina. And it's like, oh, yeah. no. Stop it. Stop yeah. it. We don't want to hear you Camilla get, talk. You could get away with it in Gordy Night because they're not actually together. Yes, and I love Gordy Night. You get that sense of him respecting her, not just for yeah for, for, her, for who she is, for her intellect as well as, as everything else. But... Um, yeah, no, you can't go on like that for too long. <laughs> no, you really can't. I think that's probably where, where I am a little bit with, with the Ruth series, you know, at uh, book 15. You know, I feel there's got to be some resolution 
you know. Yeah, and, it's and... very hard, isn't it, to keep that tension going over a number of books. Well, it really is. And I think in a way, lockdown helped because I kind of also wrote a lockdown book, but sort of really in lockdown in, in, in book 14. And that sort of helped because that was a big thing that happened to all of us. Uh, but after that, I felt I really did have to sort of come to some sort of conclusion. I mean, what was in your mind when you decided that with the Shetland series? I think because I wrote them as two quartets. So first of all, ah. there were just going to be four and they were all round colours. Um, raven, black, white knights, red bones and blue lightning. So well, that's it. That's Do you know, I'd never show. noticed that. I have read all of them. I'd never noticed that. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, you know, I've still got things to say because Shetland was changing. When I first went, it was... Oil was just coming to the islands and everybody was feeling very positive and it was very affluent And because the Shetland Islands Council were really canny and said, yes, you may bring your oil into our beautiful islands, but we'll take a percentage of every barrel, thank you. Right. And all that went into five charitable trusts and that's why we have the beautiful arts centre in Lerwick, which you'll, you'll see, and um, schools were really well provided for and each tiny community has its own leisure centre and swimming pool and, and all that. Because it, But then by the time I was starting the second quartet, which have names around the elements, then the oil was drying up and interest rates were falling so that the, the trust didn't have much money anymore and people were actually starting to realise that they couldn't have just what they wanted and there was this sense of unease really. So I wanted to do that. And then, but at the end of those four, that was enough. So you always, that, that was a shape that was kind of in your head. Yeah, I did have that shape, that arc of, of possibilities. And I remember hearing you say, um, I think you were interviewed and somebody said, oh, well, you know, Ian Rankin thought he'd finished Rebus, but he, he brought yeah. him back and you said, oh, I, I won't do that or something like that. Yeah, no, I've got more. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, I was on a, uh, we Ian and I were doing a joint um, event somewhere, I think, and he just looked at me and I said, no, I'm finishing, finishing the Shetland books. He looked, well, good luck with that, he said. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But no, I'm stronger-willed than Ian. I, and I really feel that you have made that decision, haven't you? I have to say I haven't ruled out bringing Ruth back at some point, but it's certainly, really? no, I have said the end for now, <laughs> but but... It seems the right thing to do at the moment, I have to say. It feels like the yeah. right place to stop for a bit, anyhow. I might write a short story or two set in Shetland or Orkney, because Jimmy is now, in my, in my stories, Jimmy is based in Orkney, but we'll see. Yes, short stories, again, are good for... I wrote this children's series about uh, a character called, called Justice, and it's set in the 1930s, and always wanted to bring it up to the war, so that the last one is 1939. Um, and, and it was four books, and I always wanted to be four books. But now I am thinking I might like to do a short story about her as an adult. And yeah. that short stories do give you that, that, that possibility, don't they? They do. You've got that flexibility, I think. And what's it like... I mean, you know, I have to say, keep the envy out of my voice in this little bit. But what's it like seeing the setting that you created on television? Because all three of your big series have been televised, haven't they? They have. I mean, I'm just so lucky. Yeah. I, just <laughs> you deserve like... it, Anne, definitely. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. But the the only deal breaker for me, I know that other people have their own red lines but for me it was just that they should be filmed where they're set yes so again setting is is really important and you know it's it's expensive taking a whole cast and crew up to Shetland 
And even though the books are finished and even though Dougie Henshaw, the actor, is leaving, there will still be more Shetland on television, which is terrific. Yes. Uh, but it's it's not easy, but that show just wouldn't have worked if they hadn't filmed in the islands. And the same with, uh, I think Brenda would, loves coming up to to Northumberland now to the northeast so that that will carry on being filmed here and then Matthew Venn I think they made a beautiful job just of the way the whole show looked because I guess yes, the, direc the director went and looked at um watercolor artists who worked in the in the west country and used the colors and the palette that they were using so it's very gentle the colors there yes it's and a beautiful not, blues and grays and it's gorgeous yeah and not the sort of dark hard colors that you sometimes get in crime fiction so i thought that worked i've just been very lucky with all the adaptations they're made by the same production company silver print and they're wow. just they're just stunning well, Silverprint, you know, the, the Ruth ones are still available. So, you know, set in, set in lovely Norfolk. Oh, uh, you would, they would make such a great job of it. <laughs> I would love to see them on, on TV, though. I mean, I guess, did, did you have some moments when you thought, you know, I wonder what they're going to do? Did you know that Brenda Bletham was going to be Vera quite early on? Uh, yeah, I did, because I got to know the scriptwriter, the lead scriptwriter of the first few. And he and I became great friends because... I drove him round Northumberland, again, insisted that the scriptwriter could see a bit of the place first. Yes. So we drove round Northumberland and chatted and had meals together. And so we became great friends. And so through him, he was like my mole, really, within the company. <laughs> through him, I knew that, um, that Brenda had been offered the part. And because she'd just done Secrets and Lies and Little Voice and just been on Oscar nominated ITV were desperate for her to to do it to have a vehicle for her and so we knew that if she said yes the show would like would probably run because you know what it's like if even if you've got a script it's that's oh gosh the yes they then have to have to be commissioned by the schedulers uh so we knew that it'd been offered to her but she she'd only just got it so I was fairly relaxed but then walking to the pub with Tim one night got this phone call from Paul and and he said she said yes <gasps> but you can't say anything because it's deadly secret so yes. of course we were just so thrilled and um, carried on walking to the pub bought everybody in the bar a drink but we couldn't <laughs> tell them why <laughs> I think when I first heard that she was going to be Vera I mean she's she's a really petite Always beautifully dressed woman, isn't she? And I know you describe... Totally elegant. Totally elegant, always looks elegant. And I know you describe Vera as a great lux of a woman. And yeah. But how does she become a different part? She just, she looks taller, she looks bigger. She just does it, doesn't she? She does. She's a great actor. She worked with the I director... I guess that's what Mike, it is. Yeah, she worked with the director, Mike Lee, on Secrets and Lies, at least, and maybe other things. And his way of working with the actors is that they have to create this persona that's different from them. So it's completely opposite from the method where yes. you use all your own internal thoughts and it's, you know, your own experiences. This is somebody who's separate from you and you have to know them inside out. And so he does lots of improvisation with them and they create their scripts as they go along. And Bren says that she does that by going back to the source material, which is reading the books. And I mean, just how brilliant is that for yeah. a writer? Because yes. how often do actors do that? They don't go beyond the script usually. But she always does. She reads the books. We send them to her as soon as they, we have proof copies. She gets them. And she is honestly like having a representative on set. Oh, so if how she lovely. Gets, 
if she gets a script from a new writer and it's not quite how she thinks Vera would behave, the script gets rewritten. Wow. wow. We, actually, we actually talk about it as our Vera now because she's oh. there actually being being Vera in the flesh, fighting the cause for, for that character. That's so nice to think she's sort of advocating for Vera. And so in, in a way, Absolutely it's like does. magic, isn't it? I mean, talking yeah. of old school friends, one of my old school friends has written a few Vera script, Gabby Chappie. Oh, I love Gabby Chappie. Yeah. And she, she wrote my very favourite Shetland as well. She oh. did the script about the, the sexual assault on, um, on Tosh. Yes. And she and the Gabby and the script editor and Alison O'Donnell, who plays Tosh, and Elaine Collins, who was the producer, did so much research before that. They went to Rape Crisis, they talked to them, they asked what the survivors would like to see, what they wouldn't like to see. And the feedback came back that they wouldn't want to see the actual attack itself okay. because that, that can titillate and it can bring back really bad memories if if survivors were watching but they wanted to show the aftermath of the attack and i think they did that so wonderfully and alison was just phenomenal acting in that yeah. that that series it was such so well done and that was gabby who did that i do remember that yeah so gabby so gabby and i were at school together and um we both went to a big comprehensive um, in Hove near Brighton, and Gabby's mum was our English teacher. Oh, really? Yeah, Mary Chappie, uh, and she was amazing. Yeah, ter- a terrific teacher. My other English teacher was called Mrs. English. I do remember that, and she was also. You wouldn't lovely. forget that. No, you wouldn't forget that. But uh, I think we're probably nearly out of time. But I just wanted to ask you, just sort of talking about characters, and um, because in the very first Vera book, um, the Crow Trap. She appears quite late. How did she appear? Yes. Well, I had a new young editor. You know what they're like, Ellie. <laughs> I know, bright, yes. Bright new yeah. young editor who decided that traditional crime fiction wasn't a thing anymore and nobody <laughs> would buy it. And she wasn't going to, to commission any more uh, crime series. So could I write a big standalone novel of psychological suspense? So I had this idea for these three women living up in the Northumberland National Park one of them would die, obviously, because yes. it wasn't that far from crime fiction. But, it's a great setup. <laughs> yeah, but there would be no no detective. Only I got really stuck and I never plot in advance. I was <laughs> just do it as I go. And uh is it Raymond Chandler who said if you're stuck with a book, have a guy burst through a door with a gun. With a gun, yes. Only I don't do guns because no. they take too much research. So <laughs> I just had the just had this door burst open and in came Vera. I had a name, Vera Stanhope, saying she looks more like a bad lady than a detective and she was carrying all her notes in a Morrison's carrier oh, bag. wow. And she just appeared. Just appeared like that. And then the the young editor, a music <laughs> journalist, and went off to Australia. Ah, so I could write a series again. Just as well. And, and I guess, you know, I'm sure she she doesn't mind us saying this now that she's happily in Australia, but she was pretty wrong about people not wanting character-led series, wasn't she? Absolutely, yeah. So do you not pl- plot at all, Anne? Is it just no. somebody knocks at the door? Who Who is it? Yeah, absolutely like that. Oh, fantastic. I've got a lot more like that, actually. So when I first started, I did do a little chapter plan and kind of just very, just a few few sentences per, per chapter. But about five books ago, 
I thought, what if I don't write anything down? What if it is, you know, like that? You know, somebody comes to the door and I don't know who it is. And it kind of helped me. I think it sort of freed me a bit. So now I don't write anything down. It's quite liberating, I think. And, yeah, I write like a reader, I think. So I write the first chapter and I need to know what's going to happen next. So I write the next one. And you, you have that excitement that the reader has when they're, when they're reading. Yeah, so when I finish a bit that I'm writing now, I often just write a couple of, like, words of the next bit so I know what's coming. And, and, and then it sort of grows from there, which is very exciting, isn't it? Exciting it way is. to, to really, write. Really, really exciting way to do it, I think. And have you always been like that? Yes. <laughs> I, I can't. Well, I think because for 20 years I didn't have any commercial success at all and it had to be fun. And if I knew how it was going to end, there wouldn't be any fun in it. But I think... A bit like reading the end of a book. Yes. First. And I think the reader can tell that you're still having such fun. I hope so, because I, I am. Yeah, me too. And, you know, that's what it's about, really. It, I'm, I used to be an editor, as I think you know, and um, I used to think it would be so easy, wouldn't it, as an editor, a bit like that lovely young editor of yours, if you knew what was going to sell and yeah. you could just tell your authors to write it. That would be so simple, wouldn't it? But it doesn't work because the the writer has to enjoy it, don't they? They do, and and you want you want an authentic voice to come from the page, don't you? Yes. And if you're trying to get them to write something that isn't them, then it's never going to work, is it? No, I don't think it is. It's what makes books so interesting, I think, and fascinating. But yeah. I think I probably need to draw our conversation to an end now, Anne, but it's been so lovely talking to you. And next year we'll be in Shetland together. I know. And I've already seen that some amazing writers are signing up to come along. So oh, that's going to be, be so fab. But we know that it's um, Val's going to be there, Val McDermott and, and yeah. me and Martin Edwards, who's just an encyclopedia of wonderfulness. That's right. And we've got three more big names to announce, but people who are just coming along to enjoy it and take part. Shari Lapina, I've just seen, oh, has fantastic. joined us. So it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be so good. And I can't wait to see all the places that I've just read about. So thank you so much, Anne. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's been really lovely. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Plot Thickens this week. And thank you to Anne for such a great discussion. I'll never forget the moment we heard about Vera knocking on that door. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Lindsay Harvey, the human bones expert and archaeologist who helps me on the Ruth Galloway books. So don't forget to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating or review, or better still, tell a friend about it. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Ellie Griffiths. The 15th and final book in the Dr. Ruth Galloway series is called The Last Remains and it's out on the 31st of January, 2023. You can pre-order it now from all major retailers. This podcast was produced by Dan Jones at Carmelite Studios for Quercus Books and the production coordinator was Hannah Kors.